Welcome to the Short Stories of Black History podcast. I'm your host, Amandre Johnson. And if you are joining us for our first episode, just want to thank you. Uh, how this format works is I tell a short story from Black history with someone who has lived through the time period or is connected to it in some way. Today, my guest is Miss Anis. And Anis, could you introduce yourself, please? Hi, everybody. My name's Anis Gray. And can you tell uh, us when you were born? I was born in 1950. Outstanding. So what we're going to talk about today uh, is the story of James A. Bland. And for those of us who are not uh, familiar with James A. Bland, he is one of the few songwriters to write a state song as an African-American. And he's connected to uh, Miss Honest here because he wrote the song for Virginia and she is also from Virginia. Uh, can you tell us what you know about James A. Bland and the state song of Virginia? I know that he wrote the first, the very first song uh-huh. back in the 40s, I believe. I'm not sure exactly when, but he was the very first person to write it. Outstanding. Uh, yes. So uh, James A. Bland wrote it uh, 1940. It was the state song of Virginia from 1940 until 1997. Yeah. Uh, and just a reminder to all our listeners here that Miss Honest does not know, you know, everything about the topic. She doesn't research this. I do, I've done all the research. She's lived through it. So I'm taking all her information. This is all off the top of her head, you know, what she knows about it. Uh, do you remember when you were first introduced to the song? It's been around, like I said, since I was born. Didn't We didn't sing it very much at all. Uh-huh. Learn more about it. So you did sing it? Did not. I did not. Oh. Okay. I got most of the information uh, when they started to change the song. When was that? That was back in the early uh, 97s, 90s, like 95, 97. Outstanding. Okay. So I got some notes here in front of me so we can go through. So the Virginia State song was Virginia State song from 1940-1997. The song title is Carry Me Back to Old Virginia. Uh, Songhall.org calls him the prince of Negro songwriters. Now, are you familiar with James A. Bland? Have you had ever heard of him prior? I've heard of him, for, yes, prior I have. Okay. Uh, he was born October 22nd, 1854 to... Uh, born to two free, uh, well-off, educated African-Americans in Flushing, New York. Uh, in his early life, uh, Bland's father was one of the first Negroes to receive a college education. He was appointed examiner in the U.S. Patent Office. He was the first uh, African-American to hold that post. And it uh, caused his family to move to Washington, D.C., where James attended uh, public schools. So yes, he uh, took a liking to entertainment. Uh, he played the banjo for uh, what was called the Manhattan Club. It's like a social club of Republicans of real high people, uh, such as Jimmy Walker. He was the mayor of New York City. Grover Cleveland was a member. He was former president. And John Van Buren, he was the son of President Martin Van Buren. So they were all part of the club and they all uh, came to listen to 
James A. Bland played the played the banjo. Uh, as you were younger, did you play an instrument? I played the flute for a little while. Really? Yes. Outstanding. <laughs> Do you uh, as in your childhood, what was like the most famous song of your childhood that you remember? Famous song. I really didn't have one. Didn't have no. one? Okay. Well, how about uh, your dad or your granddad? Did anybody else play an instrument like the banjo per se? No, not that I remember. Okay. Okay. Well, going further, James A. Bland was a very family oriented person. Him and his dad went to college together. Uh, he went for liberal arts and his dad went for law. He graduated at age 19, but instead of using his college degree, he chose to pursue a career in entertainment as a stage performer. Uh, at a big time, do you uh, remember what was a big part of entertainment at the time in the you know 50s? Um, entertainment. Well, we had dances and social clubs. What social club were you a part of? It was a club called the Omegas. That's a, oh, really? That was when I was in high school. Okay. Okay. Was this a uh, all black high yeah. school? Yeah. Uh, no, I graduated from a mixed school. Okay. Okay. Like interesting. The, like the well, third year after they integrated. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, James A. Bland chose to become a stage performer for minstrel shows. Mm -hmm. uh, he applied to several minstrel companies. Uh, if For those of our listeners who don't know what a minstrel show is, a minstrel show or the companies are traveling acts that dressed as Black people in Blackface uh, with very stereotypical features, big red lips. Mm -hmm. uh, they would paint their faces like super dark Black. Uh, and for the most part, James A. Bland was turned down because they didn't prefer black people to be minstrels. They preferred white people. Uh, apparently, this was funnier to them. Did you uh, have you ever attended a minstrel show or know anyone that participated in it? No, I did not. Do not. Yeah. Apparently, this was a really big thing back then. There was a bunch of them traveling. And apparently, James A. Bland was very successful. So in 1875, he was accepted into an all-black minstrel group. Uh, one of the more famous minstrel groups was the Calendars Original Georgia Minstrels. And he ended up traveling with them, and he got to travel all over the world. In 1881, he went to England and performed for Queen Victoria and the Prince of Wales. So super big job, especially for one of his first jobs. Do you, uh, what was your first job? Uh, my very first job was working in the sewing factory. Really? Yes. So would you call yourself an expert uh, seamstress? I was okay. Not an expert. <laughs> <laughs> you know who else was a seamstress? Who was that? Who else? Rosa, Rosa Parks. Yes. Rosa Parks. Yes. Uh, so how much... Uh, did you, were you hourly? Yes. How much did you make hourly? If you don't mind me I asking. don't even remember. It was so long ago. It wasn't much. <laughs> so what were we, what were we talking 1967? 1968. 
68. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I only did that for a few months. <laughs> why so? I, I really didn't like it. Oh, that's understandable. I didn't like it. Well, in the minst- had you had been chosen to be a minstrel, you could have made a lot of money. Uh-huh. James A. Bland was making about $10,000 a year uh, in 2020. Uh-huh. That's a little over a quarter million dollars a year. So he uh, received only a fraction of the money that was produced. And that's how much he was making. Okay. So that was typical at the time. Uh, he continued to write songs because that was his real passion. But a lot of his songs were uh, sold under the names of white minstrel performers. Mm-hmm. And he sold them to them. Uh, uh, according to uh, songhall.org, he was very careless with his money and ended up broke in the United States uh, back in 1901. So he ended up coming back to the United States and he tried to continue his menstrual shows, but that entertainment had kind of faded away. It wasn't as popular as it was when he first started. So uh, what became popular is vaudeville shows. Have you ever heard of I've that? I've heard of that, yes. What do you, what do you know about vaudeville Not a shows? thing. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> they were kind of like the minstrels, except for they weren't in, in clown form. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, okay. So when I looked it up, I looked up the definition of vaudeville. It said uh, an original comedy without psychological or moral intentions based on comical situations. Right. It was dramatic, like poetry. Uh, songs or ballads had uh, it can it started up like burlesque comedians, magicians, yeah. acrobats, and you know I saw an example of one where a baboon played a violin. Yeah, they had all different kind of things, but they and just they, weren't dressed like the people when the minstrels were. Okay, yeah. okay. Have you ever seen a vaudeville show? No, not live. Am, am I saying it saying that right? Vaudeville. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um. Uh, you ever get invited? Was this like the your, a date? Would anyone ever say, hey, honest, let's go to a vaudeville? No, I've never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> Not then. Okay. So when he uh, comes back to the United States from England, uh, again, he's has a bunch of trouble finding a job, very careless with money. Uh, he had to have a friend to help him find a job in a law office in Washington, D.C., where he did not uh, do well in that job, and he ended up moving to Philly uh, for the rest of his life. He is said to co- to have composed over 700 songs. None of, well, 150 are confirmed, mm-hmm. but they say about 700 because he sold them to other white singers. Right. So they will never be underlisted under his name. Uh, in 1940, his most famous song, Carry Me Back to Old Virginia, which was originally written in 1878. It was adopted as the state song until 1997. Yep. Uh, he allegedly he writ, wrote this song for his college classmate and wife, who was from Virginia but was often homesick. And I tried my hardest to find everything about his wife because if you write a song for a woman you love, you would figure that there would be more history and background about her. But I had a lot of trouble finding out about his wife, and I couldn't, I couldn't find anything. Uh, 
the song was representative of the Commonwealth in many ways. Uh, I have a quote here. When Clifton A. Woodruff was in Congress, the House of Representatives could not adjourn until the Honorable Democrat from Roanoke, Virginia, with a rich and very baritone voice, led the body in redemption of Carry Me Back to Old Virginia. Uh, and we'll get into why this song was up for debate in the 90s. But for a long time, from 1940 to 1997, that's a long time to have a state song, you know, stand as your state song, you know, uh, when it's played at congressional meetings and they said they would not adjourn a meeting until this song was played. Did you ever hear it in school or where did you hear the song at? I might have heard it in school early in school, but like I can say it mm -hmm. wasn't played very much the school I was at. Okay. Indeed. Uh, there In 2006, a bill was denied to change uh, another song written called Shenandoah as the official state song. So it was tried to have been changed in 2006, but it was denied. Uh, apparently, there are some deep-rooted hearted Virginians who refused to change carry me back to old Virginia. That's true. Uh, there are 10 different, 10 different versions of the song, mm -hmm. including one sung by Ray Charles, where it was modified to be less offensive or not offensive at all. And that's one thing that uh, a lot of people did in the other versions is a lot less offensive. Uh, I guess people wanted to still appreciate the song, but appreciate it in a way that did not demean African-Americans. Um, did you, I didn't know this until doing this research that Ray Charles did not write the song Georgia. He is not as uh, as the written author of that song. Interesting. Ray Charles, did, he, he, he wrote a song or he changed to one that was or something. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with any of the lyrics of Carry Me Back to Old Virginia? Not very much. I just know they want to go back where the tater corn and the taters and stuff grow. Some uh -huh. reference to Darkie and all that stuff in there. The old version. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I don't know if you remember, but uh, the first time that you heard this, uh, or one of the first times you heard it, or even when you think about the song as the Virginia State song, being from Virginia, uh, how does it make you feel as as this song is a representation of Virginia? Mm. Like I say, since it's been changed, it's better. But at first it was kind of heartbreaking. Indeed. Could you? Because of some of the references that were made in it. I mean, right. It's like we were degraded. Mm. Do you feel as if the song is an accurate representation of Virginia or how people in Virginia feel? No, it's not. Okay. And like I said, that's why I was trying to be changed. It exactly. took a long time, but they, they worked on it. Indeed. Uh, so some of the notable lyrics that I just plucked and pulled from uh, the song certain verses because it's not a long song but I pulled some uh, this is there's where this old darkies heart and long massa and missus mm -hmm. have long gone before me soon we will meet on that bright and golden shore there will be free from all sorrow there's where we'll meet and we'll never part no more uh, 
I, I, it references Massa and Mrs. And I'm not sure if that's, mm-hmm. uh, was appropriate in 1878 when the song was written. And I really wanted to find things on his wife to see if he wrote it for her, how she felt about that. Because I'm not sure that would have been her experience with Virginia that she would want, well, you know, memorialized also. Right. Well, back in the day, that's what happened. Yeah. I mean, that's. Indeed. Um, I got here in 1890. Larry Bland uh, returned to the States where he joined W.C. Cleveland's Colored Minstrel Carnival and allegedly was reported to have purchased a four and three quarter carat diamond. And this is a notable thing because if this is true, this is the largest ever worn by an African-American entertainer at the time. Uh, and that's highly mm. significant again because I couldn't find anything on his wife. And if you buy a four and three quarter carat diamond, you probably buying it for your lady. I, I I would think. Uh, do you remember why this song was brought back up between 1940 and 1996? Nobody really said anything. They just accepted it as a song, as far as I know. But do you remember what happened in 1997 that caused an uproar or uh? Uh, message to try to change the song? I don't know right, what happened originally, but I know everybody was complaining about it. The the younger generation. Ah. And they had to listen to it. So that's when it started working. And that, not just the black people, but the white people also. Interesting. That I did not know. thought it was disrespectful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, in 1997, Lawrence Douglas Wilder uh, an American lawyer and politician who served as the 66th governor of Virginia from 1990 to 1994. He was also the first African-American to serve as governor of a U.S. state since Reconstruction. And the first elected African-American governor led a movement to change the Virginia state mm-hmm. song. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so he came in and said, you know, let's try to change this. And again, some very deep-rooted, hearted Virginians said they refused to change. Uh, even to yeah. this day, if you look up the Virginia State song, that song will come up, although it has been retired. Uh, what does that mean to you? That they refused to change it, they will only retire it. Again, the old people, the old heads, they, they stuck to the rule. Mm-hmm. You know, they. It was the first song that was made. They, they think it's what nothing's supposed to change, and a lot of people got that feeling today. They just don't want to move with the time. Indeed, indeed. Uh, so going on, James A. Bland and I, I read a couple different articles that said he ended up dying alone uh, in Philadelphia by himself. And when I say alone, that means, you know, where he was staying at with his friend. It had no mention of his wife, uh, not very, um, very many mentions of any other friends because he had spent so much time in England. In a way, he kind of separated himself from everybody back home. I also wondered how or if him doing minstrel shows and him uh, writing such a, a controversial song you know, that was demeaning to black friendships 
uh, in Virginia or any friends that he had in D.C. Uh, would would that would that have affected your friendship? Let's say one of your friends wrote a song that was that sounded similar to this while you were younger. What would you? What might yeah, younger probably not. Not when I was younger, because like I said, that's what we were used to. Okay. But as I got older, yeah, it would have. Okay. 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 So as you grew more and understood more, it would have, it would have changed your outlook on. And on that song, period. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I wonder if that affected that. Uh, but unfortunately, he was buried in an unmarked grave, and it, and uh, he died in. May 5th, 1911, at the age of 57, uh, to tuberculosis. And, mm-hmm. uh, he was buried in an unmarked grave. And again, I believe this is because he did not have very many friends. It made no mention of his wife to the end of his life. So I'm not sure who was in charge of handling it. I couldn't find his parents' death dates. Uh, but it wasn't until 1939 that his grave was rediscovered and he was given a headstone by the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers to commemorate his life. Uh, okay. And I find that super interesting because, you know, he wrote allegedly over 700 songs. His most famous one he wrote in 1878. He died in 1911. It wasn't until uh, over 20 years later that somebody said, well, we need to commemorate him um, so much that the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, which is a huge deal and still a huge deal today, you know, created the headstone for him in Philadelphia. Uh, even still today, each each New Year's Day, and I found this on the songwriters website also, each New Year's Day, white working class Philadelphians dressed in lavish costumes and strut up Broad Street singing their favorite song. Uh, before the 1960s, many did so in traditional blackface of the minstrel stage. Uh, the official theme song of the parade that still goes on today is Odin Golden Slippers. It's a song that was also written and published by James Bland in 1879. So in a company to him being one of the first uh, African-Americans to write a state song, he is still celebrated today, and, and I don't know where people know that they're celebrated, but they celebrate him, but he's still celebrated today when they sing a song, Oh, Them Golden Slippers. And I've listened to this song. Uh, I could say it's not my favorite genre, but <laughs> but it's a big deal. Uh, and mm-hmm. I find it so interesting that, you know, as African-American, he's still celebrated as a minstrel you would think that kind of people would kind of shun him or turn their back to him. But like you said, that might've been a, a product of the time. It's what happened. Yes. So, yes. What do you, what do you think the significance of this state song is at, as being a part of Virginia? What do you think the significance, what do you think it says about Virginia? Hmm. I don't know. I can't answer that. Huh. And that's perfectly fine. <laughs> I, I'm not sure what it says either. I think it says, I think the reaction says more than the actual song. You can, I think you could chalk up James A. Bland as a product of his time, which 
although mm-hmm. people knew that it wasn't okay then, this was his choice to make money. And he wanted to be an entertainer. And during that time period, there wasn't many ways for a black man to become a famous entertainer without doing something that they may not have wanted to do. But I think that the uproar that you said by the young people shows great change and shows progress and growth. And then also you said the people who wanted to keep it the same because it's still on the list of state songs today. It's just retired. Also, that speaks volumes because, you know, although they say, yeah, you know, times has changed, they still won't let you know not that much, it seems to me. Exactly. There's certain people that certain people that feels the same way. Outstanding. Uh, So with your level and knowledge of wisdom, that you have, what would you say was uh, one of the more significant moments in your life? And you know, it doesn't have to have anything to do with James A. Bland or Mr. Shows, uh, but being that you lived through time periods that a lot of us didn't get to experience, I, I only get to read about things that you know you lived through. What do you okay. think was one of the more significant events? Uh, my graduation from, from high school was one. Why you say that? Uh, because that's, like I say, like the third year of integration and before that interacting with all the different people, the teachers, it was just completely different than going to a completely black school. Okay. Uh, did you have any black teachers? No, I did not. <laughs> not when I got in high school. Did you, did you, you had some throughout your life? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, from, from, um, we didn't have kindergarten then. So from first grade through, through eighth grade, what through ninth grade, I had black, all black teachers. Okay. Did not have a white teacher until I got to high school, which was Jefferson. Uh-huh. And that, like I said, that was the first, well, was integrated school okay. that I had gone to. Do you think? And it was it was different. That's that was going to be my next question. Uh, yeah. How much of a difference do you think it made between having black teachers and white teachers? Um, they, it, I guess they didn't really know how to. I don't know how to say. It, relate to us, really. I mean, they were good teachers, mm-hmm. but they were different. It was just different. Do you think they treated you with the same respect and regards as the teachers you had before? Yes. Okay. Mine did. Well, that's good. And that's important. I think Mine that's did, important. yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, is there anything else that you would like to add to tell the listeners? Uh, anything further that you would want them to know about you? No, I mean, I'm just a normal person. Worked all my life. (laughs) Enjoy going to school. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, And for all the listeners, we do this podcast and talk uh, to people who have lived a while because when I ask you about certain events that I read about that seem like huge moments to me, you know, it's kind of just like, yeah, that happened. You know, it's It's, it's normal life to you, you know. You don't, I get to read the book and sit into the moment and really dive in and find out about everybody. And, you know, you still had life to do while all this is going on. 
So yeah, one thing that I want to do this podcast for to sit back and reflect with people who were there because you know someday uh, someone's gonna look back and ask me about the pandemic of 2020. Exactly. I'm gonna feel like you. I'm like, oh, I mean, yeah, I was there, but you know, it wasn't nothing. That's, that's but, a, yeah. But to them, it's gonna be a huge event that they read about and learn about. Yeah. So, episode one, James A. Bland. Uh, thank you, Miss Honest, for joining us. I definitely appreciate you, and we hope You're to welcome. Have you, hope to have you back another time. That sounds good. I will try my best. Outstanding. Uh, you did an amazing job.